Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to, excuse me, might have some more. We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. I'm Brad. I am joined by my co-host, Christine. Christine, it's been a couple weeks. Has it? Summer's done, so my mind is on vacation mode. Except you're not vacationing. Well, I live by the beach, so every day is a vacation, right? All right, touche. So as we do with every episode, we have a couple uh, interviews for the listeners to look forward to. Um, and we'll go into greater detail in a little bit, but on this episode, we have my conversation with, um, ESPN's Mina Kimes, um, who I sought out because not only is she a big Top Chef fan, but she has watched from season one. So, uh, she's a dyed in the wool, uh, Top Chef fan. And I thought that would be a fun conversation. And as it turns out, it, it was. And then we also have your conversation with actor, direct, director, producer, Paul Feig, um, who directed Bridesmaids and has directed a lot of Melissa McCarthy's films. So, um, and we'll, we'll get into that a little later. You write a lot of articles for Food Sided about new product releases, um, whether it's Hellman's Jalapeno Ranch Sauce recently, or Pringles Pineapple Habanero Chips lately, or uh, you know if Pizza Hut has a new pizza, or if Say PK has new flatbreads, you're on top of that and you are constantly writing about new products. My curiosity is among the many, let's say in the last three, four months that you have written about that you have actually tried or sampled and had the opportunity, are there two or three different new products that you tr- you tried and said, wow, they rocked that. That was great. Um, any that stand out to you? I've, I've always wanted to ask you that and I never have. Well, um, the, the return of the edge pizza from pizza hut, I think is something that captures the, the, the overall food trend of nostalgia, which, you know, pizza hut calls right now, new nostalgia, but there is an overall concept with a lot of, uh, companies right now to go back to those flavors from the late eighties, early nineties, where you're, you're kind of remembering a taste that that was part of uh what what you had growing up and you crave it again and it could be a byproduct of the past year that we've had where a lot of people are wanting something comforting something familiar but still a little twist to with with a nod to something new so i think the edge capture captures that it's a really good pizza for the um summer because it's snackable and a thin that thin crispy crunchy almost cracker crust with the toppings all the way to the edge of the pizza but the thing that sets it apart is the seasoning that they have it's like this garlic cheesy parmesan herby um flavor that would be really good on french fries um (laughs) that would be really good even on vegetables if you put it on the grill uh, personally, uh, you know, one of the things that many of us, uh, asked the pizza hut group, um, and chefs was, could you please sell it in a container? Cause we would buy it because the applications of it on other food recipes would be really good. Um, the other big news how item do they respond when you, when I know it's only half jokingly, when you ask that, how do they respond? 
Um, it, it's something that they can that they would consider consider because there are a lot of crossover products within the food industry right now where people want specific items in their own home. So a great example of that is the wall burger wall sauce that people want. You know, you go to a wall burgers and it's that tangy, creamy, not quite thousand island not quite special sauce you know it their proprietary blend that they put on all their burgers well now they've spun it off into you can put buy it in a bottle um i think even aldi's gonna have it for the month of june and people just want it so it's quite it's a really good idea for brands to have those one-off options and let the record show that uh this is episode 10, I believe, of this uh, foodcast. That's the second free publicity that we have given Pizza Hut <laughs> well, in, ten, in 10 episodes. Well, if we'd like to give out some other free publicity, the big announcement um, that came today is Kit Kat has a new flavor. Um, while you know, you look at Japanese Kit Kat candy and they have over 200 of them, here in the United States, you know, most people just think of the classic chocolate wafer candy. Um, in the past couple of years, they've uh, the brand has really expanded into doing these limited edition offerings. You know, there's been the lemon crisp, raspberry. Uh, at Halloween, they had the witch's brew, which is like a marshmallowy um, option. Mm. Earlier this year, they had key lime. Today, they announced that they're offering Fruity Crisp, which is kind of like um, a nod to a, a fruity, loopy, yabba-dabba cereal flavor. Okay, so um, now you're trying to be politically correct and what, covering it, all of your brand bases with Fruity Pebbles and Fruit Loops. But if you look at the packaging, even though they're calling them you know, fruit flavors or whatever – those the image on the packaging look like fruit loops the, the true the the image on the packaging looks like fruit loops but you know i will say that the flavor is a cross between all of them yes it's much easier to say that it it's you know a, a you know a nod to the toucan but it um there it's an overall fruity cereal flavor not overly sweet nice and crunchy um a good option for summer um, they, you know, that kind of follows that, that trend too. going back to the pizza where there is this sense of nostalgia. I remember eating Fruit Loops Saturday morning cartoons as a kid. Now I can have that flavor in a candy because maybe I don't sit down and have a big bowl of that cereal on Saturday mornings anymore. Right. So from a flavor profile, what you're saying is it's as if they took the Kellogg's Toucan, the Trix Rabbit, and Fred Flintstone, locked them in a room with a generic Kit Kat bar. This is the result. Well, I mean, you you always get with a you know, Kit Kat, you get the wafer, which is always good. And then it's about the, the cream on the outside. So, you know, there's a pretty pink color, which some people will appreciate the pinkish hue but you know it's about fruit and cream and crunch so it kind of and a little bit of sweet you know it captures all of it together um limited time only just in the month of june uh yes launching in june probably until whenever it sells out my biggest question is based on if you look at everything that they've offered periodically it begs the question what will come in the fall or in the wintertime. And I'm putting it out there that um, maybe my predictions for fall could be a cranberry, could be a... Um, well, you sure know how to suck the life out of a good idea. Well, I know. I, I mean, Cranberry I, with kitten... No, 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 no. Cranberry with crunch? Oh, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like a cranberry you know um kind of like a cranberry crisp Cran- cranberries are good cranberries are sweet and tart no cranberries are for thanksgiving 
kidney ailments, and UTIs. Hi, we're Ocean Spray Cranberry Growers. And this is our 100% juice. It has no added sugar, and it's so delicious, it just won the Chef's Best Award for Best Tasting Cranberry Juice. This is going to go over big with the foodies. What's a foodie? Someone who really appreciates good food. Hmm. So if you're a juice lover, does that make you a juicy? Um, so let's take a listen to my recent conversation with ESPN's Mina Kimes. She's great. Uh, it was a fun conversation talking Top Chef. And uh, instead of me describing it, let's take a listen. So as much as I would love to sit here and discuss my browns with you, uh, especially a few years removed from 0-16, um, it's your love of a Top Chef that compelled me to reach out. And I guess the most natural first question is, when did you discover Top Chef and become hooked? Uh, I have watched every season. So <laughs> I've watched from the beginning. And, um, you know, living in New York, um, got a lot of the early winners had restaurants in New York, like um, Perilla, which I don't think is. Not, uh, oh, Harold's Restaurant. Yeah. So that was one of the first Top Chef winner restaurants that I got to go to um big fan in the early days of hung um just you know i i always loved the show um i think i don't think i've taken a single season off no so yeah i my memory is not encyclopedic but i have watched them all so a, a lot of people who have started watching much more recently than season one don't realize that season one Katie Lee or then Katie Lee Joel was in the Padma role and <laughs> did her best Chuck Cunningham imitation from happy days and sort of moved on out. And we've had Padma <laughs> since, uh, since season two, as you watch the show, obviously it is a, I call it the gold standard of food competition shows. And I would watch it if chimps were hosting, but I can't help but, feel that one of the reasons the show excels the way it does is because of Pat Miguel and Tom. And I'm just curious how you feel. Is it just about the chefs for you or is it all the little pieces of the puzzle and the nuances and everything that come together for you? Yeah, no, I think that it, it the chef, the hosts are really play a large role in this particular show's success just because they walk such a fine balance i think between being hosts mentors in the case of tom they're, they're, they're kind of they walk also like that nice line between being gentle and critical um it's hard for me to think of a, many shows where the hosts are as i would say not only skillful but also important because they're also the judges of course which is right. you know kind of unusual um I guess Project Runway, but that's a show that kind of went downhill a bit after some earlier seasons. But they they they're excellent and they've been excellent since the beginning. So Top Chef Portland this season has had to tweak the formula for obvious reasons. And it's taken away some of the adventurous Whole Foods market shopping that we've had in the past and some of the other dynamics. Plus it forced them, which I think in a good way, to bring in all-stars within the bubble for their judging for the entire season and their participation for the entire season. How's you, what's your take on how they've pulled off Top Chef Portland and in comparison to the previous 17 seasons? I've really enjoyed it. I, I um, don't really miss the Whole Foods stuff I found, <laughs> which I, you know, I didn't know how I would feel about that until show started but it it really is like you know the most interesting thing was occasionally you would have two chefs competing for the only swordfish or something right, right. usually it was the protein counter but other than that you know or just not being able to find something that they expected and so i guess you remove that element of drama which you know in retrospect i i actually don't miss a lot because it always kind of gave away too much where the episode was headed, you know, nine times out of a 10, if a chef had some sort of conflict and abandoned their original plan, it meant that they were going to be in the bottom three. So I don't really miss that. Um, and then as far as the, yeah, right. Exactly. And as far as the, um, guest judges, I think 
it's been kind of fun to have these secondary characters, but they're also, for the most part, judges or um, former contestants that I really like. Like these are some of my favorites in particular, um, you know, Melissa recently, Gregory is an all time favorite of mine yep. as well. So I think they were really deliberate about choosing some fan favorites and it paid off. You know, the other thing, as far as like from the just television perspective, all those contestants that I really like, um, maybe outside of like Richard Blaze to some degree, like they they are not really trying to be on television and kind of make the show about themselves. They're just right. kind of there to guide and judge. And I appreciate that, too. Unless you're Brian Malarkey or Richard Blaze. Yeah, I I think do not need <laughs> Brian Malarkey as a as a guest judge. Um, so when I spoke to Pat McGill and Tom last year separately, I decided to put them on the spot, the equivalent of asking a parent who their favorite child is. And I asked if each of them could bring in a Top Chef alum to cook for them at a private party, who would they bring in? Surprisingly, all three were willing to answer, which was phenomenal. But I wanted to then ask you the same question. If your doorbell rang right now and <laughs> there was a Top Chef alumni there with full exposure to your kitchen to cook for you, who would that chef be? Or if is there a savory and a dessert chef? Do you have <laughs> somebody that you would love to show up at your door and cook for you? Um, I would say Kristen Kish, who um, not only is her style of food and background similar to my own, I think um, she would make the best use of the ingredients I currently have in my kitchen. Uh, okay. um, yeah. So, and she's just, I think one of my, I mean, I mentioned earlier some of my favorites, but she's definitely an all-time favorite for me and someone I admire a lot. And it's funny, that's who Padma picked. Really? Okay. Who did the rest pick? Uh, Padma picked uh, Kristen for the savory and Carla Hall for desserts. Gail mm -hmm. named Stephanie Izard for savory and Zach Young for desserts. And Tom said if he had to pick, it would be Melissa but he also loved, he also considered and loves Gregory and Mei Lin. Those are but, all great choices. <laughs> yeah. And the, the fact that they answered, I thought was just so outstanding. I love that. Um, so yeah. having one of the Top Chef alumni come and cook for you is not necessarily the same as being your favorite on the show within the competition and with the social interaction. And, the, and, and do you have a favorite mm. and least favorite? Oh, top wow. chef contestant or two from the last 18 years it, yeah it's interesting because i think I, I really like a lot of the sort of mild-mannered kind of focused chefs um eric gregory i love, I love shirley i love Shirley. Oh. Yeah, eric's cool eric's a big sports fan too so shout out to eric um also just one of my favorite contestants both from a personality and then also from a cooking like i just felt like i always learned so much about food from his seasons, but Shirley is a favorite personality wise. I really like her. Um, so maybe that would be a favorite and then least favorite. Um, that's definitely like earlier seasons. <laughs> I, you don't really get the same kind of villain edits. Um, who was the gal on Heather? I think oh, might okay. be a, a least favorite for mine. But didn't she come back, though, and she's, like, much nicer? There was a uh, – they did, for All-Star, she came back and kind yeah. of redeemed herself. Exactly. Was that Heather? Okay. So I, I'm now I'm, I'm okay with Heather. See, and it's funny. I go all the way back to season one with the least liked, and I still cringe at the mention of Stephen Esprinio's name. Ooh, yeah. Mr. Somalia. That, that was a – there were a lot in the early yeah. season. And Marcel early on really was, was quite a handful. Yeah. At least he could cook, you know? Right. And he has softened up in later years, too. Moving on from Top Chef, if that's okay. Um, sure. You helped David Chang win a million dollars um, on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. How did that come about? How did you become one of his phone of friends? Yeah. Um, I met David for the first time a few years ago. He had me on his podcast. But we had a lot of friends in common sort of through Asian uh, sports circles and okay. media. Um, Alan Yang, who was also on the show with him, is a friend of mine for a lot preceding Chang. Um, and so we had some other mutual friends. And um, 
sort of got to know each other from that and just stayed in touch. We co-managed a fantasy football team at one point that did uh-huh. not win. Unfortunately, he's a big sports guy. So we just kind of stayed in touch. And then a few weeks before the show, he just reached out to me and Alan and asked if we would do it. Um, and I don't know if we were the first choice he says we were. I'm not 100% sure that's true, but um, <laughs> we both said yes. So I'm going to quote directly so I don't mess this up. You mentioned your appearance on his podcast. When the topic of processed meat came up, you said, quote, fucking inject that into my veins. That's the perfect lead into asking you what your food likes and dislikes are. Well, I do like spam (laughs) and hot dogs and all kinds of, I like Scrapple, for example. Oh, so my, okay. my husband's from Philly and the first time I had Scrapple, he was like really embarrassed of it. And I was like, this, this is delicious. Um, but uh, yeah, I, um, I, I would say I have kind of, my taste is all over the board. It's very lowbrow. <laughs> um, very, I really love Korean food and when I'm not eating cream food, I still love a lot of the same kind of flavors. I just really garlicky food, salty food, um, spicy food. Um, so, you know, I, um, gosh, trying to think of it. I mean, living in Los Angeles, I've really enjoyed, you know, a lot of the sort of styles of food that I didn't have access or I had access to in New York, but I think LA there's such a diversity of options here. It's um, pretty cool. Just where I live, you know, near incredible Mexican food, incredible Filipino food, incredible Japanese food. So I, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I eat out a lot. too. One more weird food thing is my favorite food is corn, which people are always confused by. That's a, I guess a very strange favorite food, but I just love corn in all of its forms. Um, and in Korea, like I love, you know, like um, cream corn, corn on the cob, elote, um, grilled corn, corn red. But with Korea uh, and Korean food, there's a lot of um, you would call it uh, like kind of pub food in Korean pub food. You can get corn with melted cheese is something that I really like. That's an incredibly lowbrow dish. but. Um, yeah, it's something I enjoy. Now, it's funny that you say that because one of the things I was going to ask you is about your mom. And she tweeted the other day about making Eggo frozen waffles. And she was reminiscing about decorating them for you when you were a kid. And I have also heard you say that she used to just dump cheese on shit and make me eat it. Does the affinity for cheese and the love of cheese that you just mentioned... <laughs> go all the way back to, to those childhood roots? Yeah. So um, I think that's a good representation too, of how my mom would make these incredible Korean dishes and that, that I probably didn't appreciate enough growing up. But then the thing that I remember is eating like melted cheese on uh, like a steamed chicken breast or something. Although she, it was also, I think spoke to, she didn't really know how to make a lot of American dishes and the Korean interpretation of a lot of American dishes is like putting cheese on something or like mayonnaise or whatever. And um, I grew up eating a lot of stuff like that. During the pandemic, even people who are not normally doing the cooking in the household sort of made that forbidden foray into the kitchen and started experimenting, whether it was banana bread, sourdough. Um, Did you become a little more active in the kitchen during the pandemic? And what, what were your successes and failures? I did make some banana breads and I've always been more of the baker in my family than the cook. Um, so I made some banana breads, pies, cookies, that kind of thing. Um, with with success? With, yeah. I've always been pretty good at it actually. Oh, okay. Baking is just about following the rules. Um, but uh, as far as like cooking, I'm the kind of person who during the day when I'm working, I'm so dialed in. Usually I'm just kind of eating for sustenance. And then at the end of the night, you know, we'll have a nice meal that would either be something we would order or my husband who, who just loves cooking would, um, and I'll be his sous chef, but I'm really not, um, 
I'm, I'm good at cutting, but that's about it. <laughs> you travel for work. You've lived in New York, LA. You've um, been overseas, obviously. Do you have a favorite food city? And you said you eat out a lot, which is the most important asset, uh, aspect of this question. Do you have a favorite food city that given the choice, oh, you know what, I can cover a story here or cover <laughs> a story there that uh, I'm tying that into a trip? Gosh, well, I, I really love barbecues. So I've really enjoyed going to either Texas or the South. And, um, and, and it's also something where, you know, there are places in New York and LA, but you really need to travel to get really great barbecue. Right. Um, now I don't eat barbecue every day, so it's not like where I'd want to, like, I don't, I, in terms of living, I'm pretty content with LA because of the diversity of options, but I love getting the opportunity to eat that as well as, you know, Chick-fil-A when I'm driving around. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And actually in general, um, Christine and I do spend a lot of time chit-chatting about different food, food and drink. This is Christine. I have to remember and drink related topics on this uh, food cast. Um, but we also take a great deal of pride in the interviews that uh, we're able to bring to you. So hopefully you enjoyed that one with Mina Kimes. I know you'll enjoy the one coming up with Paul Feig. And uh, if you like what you hear, please rate us, rank us, subscribe to this particular foodcast um, because there's many more to come that uh, we think you'll really enjoy and want to listen to. Um, so speaking of the your interview with Paul Feig, it, most of the interview or all of the interview is predicated upon his love of a topic that you share his love for that I know nothing about as usual, which is alcohol and more specifically gin. Um, June 14th is National Gin Day. June 13th is World Gin Day, which means uh, Christine gets a double header. Um, talk to me about gin in general for people like me and others who don't know what makes it special while somebody, why somebody like Paul would, would be passionate about it. And a um, little bit about uh, why Paul is passionate about it from based on uh, your conversations and, and what you learned before we uh, hear, hear that interview. Well, right now, Jen is having a moment in the spirit world. Um, normally when it comes to liquor there, you know, there are various ones that have a big uptick and then someone goes and finds a new bottle to open and, and changes the trend. But right now the focus, especially going into summer is on the modern gin and what that, phrase is a little different concept than what people kind of remember uh, from years and years ago. As Paul kind of brought up, that some of us remember going behind the bar and pulling out a, a bottle maybe with a iconic British uh, image on it and taking that first sip from dad's liquor cabinet and like, oh my God, that tastes like pine. And I think my mouth is on fire. Would that be and beef eaters? That might be beef eaters. Oh, no, that, I'm not, and I, I'm not piping yeah. in to be cute. I was just wondering if that was okay. Well, I mean, it could be anything. I mean, there's a variety of different gins that are out there that have been out there for a very long time. And what makes a gin different than a vodka is adding in all the botanicals that bring the flavor. So, you know, a vodka, you should never taste. A vodka should hide in the background, but still give you that liquor buzz because it's liquor. Whereas gin, you want to be able to taste, well, maybe there's sorghum, maybe there's lavender, maybe there's, um, a, you know, piney notes, floral notes, sometimes spicy cracked pepper notes. So you want the, all of those added flavors are what make a gin great. But so many people have been turned away from the spirit because there is there has been that thought that gin has to be really pine forward. Modern gins aren't that way. They're more nuanced. They're more balanced. You kind of appreciate all the different notes to it. So with Ardingstall's gin, which is the one that Paul created, he found a way to make a very balanced, very um, cocktail-friendly gin 
where you can look at it, why it's delightful on its own, just drunk, neat, or even with a simple, really good tonic, um, and, and maybe, you know, a little bit of citrus, it also can transform itself into a variety of different cocktails, basically swapping out a vodka in many scenarios, um, and, and, and appreciate the nuance of it with his, his concept is, you know, he believes that cocktail hours should be an experience. It's not just about, Hey, let's go grab a bunch of drinks and see who can get hammered first. Let's put them in a pretty glass. Let's take the time to appreciate what we create and what we're sipping and what we enjoy and have a moment, have a conversation. Um, the, you know, it, it's, he did a lot of that on his Instagram in the past year where he had these, you know, cocktail culture, um, events where it was about, Hey, I've, I've made a fun cocktail that pairs well with Ghostbusters or with a scene from Bridesmaids. So you spoke to Paul while he was on location shooting in Dublin, Ireland. And I do have a couple follow-up questions, but first let's take a listen. I know that the trivia event is supporting the, that the gin is now available in Florida. And I happen to live in Florida. So um, I, I'm just a little curious. Why do you think that the gin would be a real, that your gin would be a really good um, fit for the Florida atmosphere. I mean, I know that's not necessarily the push of the the event, but um, just kind of curious. Well, you know, many reasons. One, since you're such a sun-soaked state, um, and you can you know go to the beach and 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 kind of enjoy that kind of weather more year-round than a lot of other places. Gin is a great skinny drink um, because. You know, like the clear alcohols, it's got less calories than some of the other ones. And one of my favorite drinks to make, other than a, a martini, which is my absolute favorite drink in the world, is to make a gin and soda. Not a gin and tonic. The gin and tonic has a lot of sugar in the tonic water. But a gin and soda is a pretty low-cal drink, uh, and it's really delicious. And what I like about doing a gin and soda is that it just highlights the taste of the gin. You don't hide the gin under under the, the tonic water, um, which sometimes, for me, tonic water combined with gin can make it even a little too harsh for, for my taste. But if you put the Marty Salls with, with uh, soda on top of it and put in a, a twist of lemon, you've got a very refreshing drink that, that is as guilt-free as, a, as, a, as an alcoholic drink can be. So I think it's the perfect Florida drink. Well, it, it's interesting that you brought up the idea of, you know, not hiding the flavor of gin. And there are some people who um, you say, oh, you like gin, and they look at you like you have a third eye or you don't know, you know, what bourbon is or something. Um, but to, to someone who, I, and personally, I love gin. I grew up with it. But, you know, others are still a little hesitant of it. So what would you recommend to them to kind of embrace all the botanicals and appreciate the layers of flavor that you get in a really good gin? Well, you know, gin is a very personal thing because, you know, people who know gin or, or, or know the older gins know it to be very juniper forward, which to people who don't know or don't like gin tastes very piney. So, it, you know, I, I, I have this theory, because it's based on my experience with gin, which is a lot of us in our youth snuck down to either our parents' bar in the basement or our neighbor's bar or our friend's, bar, friend's parents' bar and probably reached for the bottle of gin first because you always heard about gin and took a, took a, a swig and went like, ah, because you weren't prepared for that taste, you know. And, and if you go back to the old beef eaters and, and all those, they're very, very juniper forward. And so I think a lot of people got put off by that and have always had their, that image in their head of that's what gin tastes like not realizing that there are so many other varieties of gin and ways to, to do it because gin, there, there's an endless uh, amount of, of variations gin can be because gin is basically ethanol, which is sort of the basis of, of uh, vodka, that is flavored. It's almost like you, 
Now, what I wanted to do with, with Artie's dolls, knowing that people had that experience, that I had the experience too, was I wanted to make a very friendly gin that would please a gin lover, but also be what I could consider the gateway gin for the vodka drinker. Um, because, you know, vodka, as we know, doesn't have any taste. It's actually made to not have any taste and regulated that way. Uh, and so, you know, you know that it kind of makes you feel good when you drink it, but you're not getting anything from it, and it's not adding anything to the other things that you mix it with. Um, what I love about a gin is you don't want to – you shouldn't want to hide the flavor of gin. There's plenty of cocktails that make good use of gin uh, that, that compete flavor-wise, but the best ones – highlight and accentuate the, the taste of the gin. And so mine has such a light juniper, but has also a bit of a citrus, a little bit of floral to it, and a little bit of uh, pepper to it also, um, that it really, it, it doesn't challenge you in the ways that a traditional gin will. You know, and the test for me is always, I've so many people like, I have my own gin, and they're like, I don't like gin. I feel like, just taste it. And to a person, they'll go, oh, I like this. And so, you know, I'm kind of on a one-man crusade to sort of get people to to get past their old prejudice they had against the, the you know, the early swig of gin they had and they had to embrace, you know, it's a more it's more adult flavors. It's really, you know, it's the step, it's the adult step up from vodka. Well, I, I look at some of the cocktails that you've done with your gin and, and I would say occasionally the ingredients that you mix in with them are not what I typically think of when I think of a gin cocktail. You know, I'm normally thinking some type of citrus and keep it kind of simple and bubbly. But I mean, if I look at, you know, at, at Christmas, you had a very um, multi-layered cocktail. And even your signature martini has sake in it, which I never would have thought to put with gin. Is does, when you think about like some of the cocktails that you come up with, is that part of the the call that makes this what, kind of what you said a gateway gin that you can make it approachable for the person who loves a great cocktail yet is still wary of that big piney taste that they remember from years ago? Yeah, very much so. You know what I've discovered with my with my gin is it is. It really works in 99% of uh, vodka-based cocktails. And what it does is it just makes its presence known in a very lovely way. It doesn't, it doesn't punch through and hit you, but it also just gives you an extra little bit of something at the base of the drink that I feel accentuates the other taste in it because it uh, it's hard to describe. I think it almost gives it a little bit of spice um, in the lightest sense possible, but in the most kind of pleasant sense possible, too. And so it's been really fun to break the chains of what you would normally put gin, cocktails you would normally put gin into. And I'm constantly experimenting, going, I wonder if it will hold up with this. And I, I can count on my hand the number of times that, that it, I've gone, like, okay, maybe that doesn't work, but it's it's been very, very rare because um, that's just how we formulated this gym to, to really to play well with others, if you will. Well, it sounds almost like when I think of, say, like a recipe and you want that unami flavor, you can't exactly put your, you know, give a name to it. Yeah. But but it's that that flavor that keeps bringing you back for more and more. Yeah, totally, totally. It's. It, I mean, this is probably a bad analogy, but it's almost like the salt you put into, you know, a meal to make it kind of come alive. You know, you go like, it's missing something, and then that goes in, and you're like, oh, there, it just gives it a little center that, that, that other, if it didn't have, it might be a little bit blander. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I just think it, it really complements things in a, in, a, in a way that, quite frankly, as much time as I spent formulating this, I'm surprised at, at how versatile we are, even more than what I kind of spent all the time formulating with to make it versatile. It's even more versatile than I thought it was going to be. Well, and, and I look at everything about this particular gin, and it looks from from beyond the flavor profile and the versatility aspect, even the approach to the bottle 
there is this element, um, and I know you use it in, uh, you know, some of the descriptions bespoke, but there is kind of like that nod to um, understated elegance and appreciating the moment of, you know, having that good cocktail hour with friends. Is that also intentional with your brand? Oh, 100%. 100%. I I am a fanatic about cocktail culture. And to me, cocktail culture is about adults being adults and having adult fun. And, you know, you go through, you know, a lot of people go through the college phase of just drinking to get drunk and you're drinking out of solo, red solo cups. And, you know, it's just about kind of getting hammered. And that's fine when you're that age, but that's not what cocktail culture is. You know, the cocktail culture is about the cocktail, but it's about the pageantry around the cocktail. It's about the setting around the cocktail. It's about the, the aesthetics of the cocktail. And so, you know, to me, it's about the setting. Are you in a beautiful bar? Are you in your house in a nice room? What glasses are you picking up? Do you have the nice, you don't have the nicest glass. You don't have to have the highest end glasses, but do you have glasses? Are you not, drinking out of plastic and then how are you mixing the drink how you're presenting the drink are you garnishing the drink because it should be the if you're by yourself it should be this little reward that kind of makes you feel more adult and more together and 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 appreciate being an adult and if you're with friends it should be the thing it's like bringing out a great meal that's beautifully garnished and prepared people are like wow you know it, it needs to raise the level of everything around it. And, and, you know, I'm not a fan of just, just drinking to get drunk. You know, that's not, not fun. You know, it, it's about that pageantry because then it becomes a ritual that, that is kind of life affirming and, and, and age affirming <laughs> makes you happy that you're not a kid anymore, you know, and, and it takes you back to the watching those old movies from the 1930s with William Powell and Berta Lloyd, you know, in their living room in a tuxedo or at a supper club, sharing a sharing a cocktail or in sharing a martini. You know that that's the glamour of, of cocktails that I think we've lost, and I think cocktails have gone through a very hipster phase, which I think is really fun. I think it's really cool, but I want to bring it back to like a a classy phase, and classy doesn't mean you have to have money. It just means you know you can go down to crate and barrel and buy, you know, four <laughs> martini glasses for 10 bucks, probably, you know, but then you're drinking out of something lovely. Well, and, and it sounds to me in a way that it, um, that kind of was a little bit behind what you did in the past year with like the quarantine cocktail time where everyone kind of had the opportunity to appreciate making cocktail hour a moment. I mean, I can think back to like when my grand, when I was young with my grandmother and four thirty came and she would fix herself a Manhattan in the crystal glass yeah. with the, you know, all of that, but we've kind of lost that. But in the past yeah. year, we, and maybe we've brought it back a little. Do you think, or yeah. do you hope? Well, I hope. And I, I mean, that was part of my mission was, you know, a, I wanted to kind of give everybody something to do, you know, in the middle of this pandemic with my little bit, I could try to do to kind of, you know, cheer people up every day, but also to try to get people to not, you know, I said on the show a bunch of times, like, don't spend the day in the clothes you slept in. <laughs> you know, it's just depressing. It's going to make your, you feel terrible, but you know, let's say you get up and you're doing work or whatever, you don't change. That's fine. But if you're heading towards the cocktail hour, you know, I want to be the guy every day. Go like, here we are. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm dressing up for cocktail time. It's not going to be stodgy. It's not going to be some boring thing. Or like, oh god, that's so you know, it's so whatever. You know, whatever negative connotation you have with adult life. Go like, look, this is fun. This is like we're just going to have fun, and we're going to. I'm going to dress up, but I'm going to act like an idiot. You know, and you dance and do a bunch of dumb things, and you know, make my lemon squeezer talk, and you know, but. That's the thing I think has been lost with adult life is this idea of, like, we have to act like kids in order to have fun. If we act like adults, then it's boring. And I'm such not a believer in that. I, I couldn't, when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to be an adult because I thought that looked like the most fun thing on earth. I just didn't want to become a boring. 
part of that. And these are things you take, you know, if you want to try to stay a kid, well, then you shouldn't be drinking. But if you want to be an adult, but you want to be a fun adult, then you can have cocktails. And, and that's part of the fun. Well, later tonight, after I get done with my day and, and can turn the laptop off and everything, as I sit down to my adult cocktail time to unwind, what what cocktail would you recommend that I uh, shake up tonight as I open the bottle that uh, you so nicely sent? Well, you know what? I, uh, I, I'm a purist, and I think, you know, if, especially for the first time you're having it, I would make a martini. I would make a very dry martini. Um, I hope you, but only if you've got good vermouth. Not good vermouth. Make sure you have fresh vermouth. Um, what happens is I go to a lot of people's houses. I go, oh, you have the vermouth? They're like, oh, yeah, it's in the bar. And I'll go in, there's some bottle of vermouth that was clearly opened a year ago. It's been sitting in there. Vermouth is like wine. It's going to go bad if you don't put it in the refrigerator. So if you can get yourself, or if you have, a unopened bottle of vermouth or one that was freshly opened and then you had it in the refrigerator, take that, get either fill a shaker or I like a mixing glass personally with ice, or literally put in a dash of, of vermouth. You want just enough to open up the gin and then pour in, you know, good three to four ounces of gin and stir it for at least 30 seconds, if not for a minute. And also make sure that you put your martini glasses in the freezer so that they're ice cold because the only good martini is a freezing cold martini. And then strain it in, cut yourself a very generous twist of lemon, squeeze it over the top so that the oil is released from the skin, drop it in, and we'll rub the edges so you get the oil on the uh, edges where your mouth is going to touch. Drop it in and enjoy what I think is the best martini you'll ever have in your life. Well, based on your description, it sounds like I'm going to have a very enjoyable evening. And luckily in my well-stocked bar, I have an unopened bottle of vermouth that is waiting to be opened this evening. So we should be good. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Excellent. The minute you open it, put it in the fridge. Don't leave it out. Well, you know, in my world, sometimes open bottles don't last long. So um, we're, we're probably good. Go. I, I, my, my husband and uh, father-in-law like a good cocktail. So they might be joining me. Oh, good. I'm, uh, you know what? The more the merrier. Sounds like a cocktail party to me. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks so much. It was really fun talking to you, and I hope you enjoy the martini. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Cheers. So, Christine, um, after hearing the interview with Paul Feig, a couple of things that come to mind, again, as somebody who knows nothing about alcohol or mixing drinks, and even you know, on the topic of gin, which is what your conversation was about. He, one of the cocktails that he discussed was one he created mixing gin with sake. And I don't know anything about either, obviously, but that strikes me as bizarre a bizarre combination. And so I'm curious when you hear about that and he mentions that to you, are you then inclined to go try to make one yourself and, and see what you think of it? I'm just, that just stuck with me. I was curious what you thought. Um, I, I found it really interesting because sake is like the, the drink that a lot of people don't necessarily know what to do with. I mean, um, it is the, the rice wine, has such a long history to it and, and and it when done well is very very nuanced and very very um a, a beautiful sip i mean uh it, it it's not the sake bomb that you get at a bad sushi restaurant so let's put that part off the table but like a really good one you treat it like a wine you, um, one of the best things you can do is put a little bit of sake on a raw oyster and do it like an oyster shooter. It's really, really good. Um, but that pairing of the different flavors was, um, intriguing and it kind of goes back to the idea of with his particular gin and it doesn't work with every gin, but with, with Paul's gin, it, it opens itself to that type of experimentation and um, it, building of different flavors. You know, his sake uh, cocktail, I believe, if I recall correctly, had a little bit of um, 
yuzu, which is like citrus and the sake and the gin kind of plays off different notes than what you generally do in a gin drink. So, um, it, you know, it, it invites itself to, to that conversation. Hey, what can you do with it? What, what doors can you open and what, and what can you, you know, see and do differently? That should do it for us for this episode. But, um, before I free Christine to head out into the wilds of Florida or in the case of the day we're actually recording this universal studios in Orlando. Um, I should mention that not only do we both uh, have the pleasure of co-hosting this foodcast, but um, Christine is, as I have said on previous episodes, the grand poobah of foodsided.com where she is prolific in her coverage of food television, all things drink, new products as we referenced earlier and uh, keeps what is a very, very populated content rich site um, going on a day-to-day basis. And I contribute occasionally. Um, So if you enjoy what you hear here and you're a food and drink lover like we are um, and you have not had the chance to visit foodsided.com, do so. You will see uh, all of Christine's amazing output and you'll see occasional output from me. Um, Anything else you want to add to that, Christine? Um, Wish me luck that I make it back from riding the Velocicoaster at uh, Universal because that's a daunting task to go 80 miles an hour down a drop or wait, 80 foot down a drop and upside down. I top there's something about a top hat and some Raptors chasing me. I, I don't know, but hopefully there's a cocktail before and after. So my hands don't shake so much. And I was going to say, I suggest you don't ingest anything prior to trying that out for the first time. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't gone on an upside down roller coaster in about 20 years. So why I, I like things that uh, like the Hagrid's roller coaster at, at Universal that goes really fast, but is um, does no upside down movement or really super steep drops. I haven't <laughs> uh, done a really extreme roller coaster in a while. So uh, wish me luck. So if I have a guest host on the next episode, we'll know what the outcome was. The Raptors ate me. Thanks, Christine. We'll do this again soon. Bye, Brad. See ya. May I have some more? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.